الجزيرة بودكاست Cuba saw its largest emigration of people last year since Fidel Castro's revolution in the 1950s. Most headed for the U.S. over the border with Mexico, along with many thousands from other countries. It's become a political crisis for the U.S. and President Joe Biden has announced new measures. More visas will be granted for some going through official channels, but those who simply turn up at the border will be immediately turned away. So what's causing this mass exodus? And can conditions change for the people of Cuba? I'm Laura Kyle, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. Let's bring in our guests now. Rosa Maria Paya, founder of Cuba Decide, a movement to change political and economic systems in Cuba towards democracy. She joins us from Miami. Helen Yaffe is senior lecturer in economic and social history at the University of Glasgow, and she joins us from there. And joining us via Skype from Washington, D.C., is Andrew Seeley. He's president of the Migration Policy Institute. A very warm welcome to all of you. Rosa Maria, we outlined there some of the reasons why people leave Cuba, the so-called push factors. But why did we see such a rise in numbers over the past year? Well, we have to understand that the situation on the island is extreme. It's not only an economical crisis. The the each system in the in in the country has been collapsing during the last uh, during the last years. It's very hard to find uh, medicines in the pharmacy. It's very hard. It's very hard to find proper medical attention. People in many in many regions of the country are uh, starving. But in, on the top of all this, the political repression has increased and increased and increased with, uh, with the months since the protests started. There are more than 1,000 political prisoners in this moment on the island. That's the largest number of political prisoners in the hemisphere. If you add all the rest of the political prisoners in Nicaragua and Venezuela and the rest of the hemisphere, you're not going to get to the number that we have in Cuba. We're talking about mainly young folks that uh, the only crime that they committed is to walk in the streets demanding freedom, demanding the end of the dictatorship. By the way, not the end of the embargo, the end of the dictatorship. Mm. And that's the reason why the people is escaping. The reason is a dictatorship that does not allow for the Cubans to pursue their dreams in a, in a, in a, in a safe way on the, uh, on the island. There's another element that is very important to understand here. The, uh, the Cuban people continued demanding that change. Actually, in the last year, at least 3,000 public protests have been registered. There were more protests in September uh, last year than in July 2021 on the island, even when that is not being narrated. So, of course, that the dictatorship needs an escape valve. And they found it in November of 2021 when the Cuban dictatorship called the attention of another dictatorship, Nicaragua, and suddenly Daniel Ortega removed the visa restrictions for, uh, for Cubans. From that day to till now, actually, from November 30, 2021, till uh, December last year, more than more than 267,000 Cubans have crossed the southern border of the U.S. We are talking about more than the 
of the Cuban population, escaping terror, escaping state terrorism, but also being weaponized by, by a dictatorship to obtain uh, to, to obtain demands from the uh, U.S. government to put pressure over the U.S. government, and this is not new. Okay. They have been doing that kind of things for sixty years. Okay, Andrew. Before we address many of those other points that um, Rosa Maria brought up there, I just want to uh, make clear this Nicaragua element because it did seem to be a key factor in the past year's migration push, wasn't it? This opening up of transit between Cuba and Nicaragua, the fact that Cubans could leave to Nicaragua without a visa or easily obtain a visa and then travel by land across the US. This was a major route for Cubans to be able to take. Yes, this has become the principal route. I mean, we have seen some people leaving on by boat as well, uh, directly from Cuba, but the primary route has been people flying to Nicaragua because they no longer need the visa. Mm. Um, and there are charter companies that have started doing multiple flights a day from, from Havana to, and, and other places in Cuba actually, to, to Managua, and then people hire a smuggler and, and head, or sometimes go on their own for pieces of it, hire smugglers for pieces, and head up to the U.S. border. Until yesterday, the U.S. was allowing um, almost all Cubans in. Um, there's also no deportation agreement with Cuba right now as part of the, the, the many problems in the relation to the diplomatic relationship between the two countries. So you have a situation like Rosa Maria said, where people are desperate, where people you know, have lost hope in the future of the country. The economic situation is bad. The political situation is bad. You have the possibility of getting out. There's a route that's opened up, and you know if you make it to the U.S. border, and there the danger is, you know, I mean, this is a dangerous journey, even with a smuggler. There's lots of danger from organized crime, but if you make it to the U.S. border, at least until yesterday, you were pretty much assured of getting into the United States, and that's a risk a lot of people were willing to take. As she said, more than 2% of the population took that risk. Why do you think Cuba and Nicaragua chose to open up that route? You know, it, it, it could be, you, you can read it one of two ways, and, and they're not mutually exclusive. I mean, one is that Nicaragua needed Cuban tourism, which is probably true at the end of COVID. I mean, they were desperate also for, for tourists, and, and Cuban tourists are important for Nicaragua. But look, I, you know, both the Cuban and Nicaraguan governments are also looking to leverage their relationship, leverage migration in their relationship with the U.S. government. Mm. And they're figuring that the more this becomes a a bigger crisis uh, politically in the United States for Joe Biden, then they will probably be able to negotiate something with him. I, I think it has worked out for Cuba. I mean, there, there are talks going on. It may not be just because of this, but there have been talks going on between US and Cuba. Does not seem to have worked out for, for Daniel Ortega in Nicaragua. That has not gone anywhere. But I'm sure whether that was the original intention or not, it certainly became a, a side benefit and it may well have been part of the original mm. intention is, is knowing that this would would cause political havoc in the U.S. and would bring the U.S. to the negotiating table. Helen, do you see the major push factors being, as Rosa Maria says, people escaping terror, getting away from a dictatorship, or is it the economic factors, the dire economic conditions that people are living in without hope of them improving in the near future? What is the major push factor there from Cuba? There's no doubt that most of these are economic migrants, um, as they are from all over Latin America. And I mean, you know, here in Britain, we um, also have experienced massive increase in um, illegal, 
uh, immigration from people who are desperate to improve their lives. Now, at the start of this, you had a quote from someone talking about your house being on fire. But we should step back a little and say, well, who has set the Cuban house on fire? And the Cuban house has been set on fire, as you said in your introduction, not just through the most uh, comprehensive and longest um, enduring set of sanctions, a sanctions regime against one single country, that's the United States blockade against Cuba. But since 2019, the Trump administration pursued a maximum pressure strategy in order to make life unbearable for Cubans. And uh, I agree with Rosa Maria Paya uh, that there are scarcity of basics like medicine. And this is a country which prior to this had the capacity to produce almost 70% of the medicines it consumes domestically. So you have this terrible dichotomy. You have Cuba, a, um, a leading figure in biotech sector, the only country in Latin America and the Caribbean with the capacity to create its own COVID-19 vaccine, but then unable for several months to administer that vaccine, which was linked to the uh, 11th of July process, which was also mentioned, because it couldn't access syringes. Why? Because global uh, syringe um, production is dominated by the United States. Now, the extent of sanctions has become absolutely suffocating for Cuba. So let me give you a personal example. I'm a British citizen in Britain. If I send a one pound transaction to a European bank account using the word Cuba, that transaction is currently blocked. So, you know, the question is, with these shortages, how can Cuba get the necessities that the Cuban people are accustomed to having and need when they can't use the international financial system mm. because of US sanctions? So it's a very complicated problem, but we need to look at cause and not just... It is. And, and Rosa Maria, to what extent do you agree with that, that United States sanctions, its long-standing trade embargo, all of this has created the Cuba that we have today and created the situation that is pushing so many people to leave? Well, beyond my opinion, facts are that there is no embargo in food and medicine from the US. That is, that is a fact. Cuba can buy medicine and food. And actually, they do that from, uh, from the United States. Actually, United, uh, United Nations, United States, and I believe that other countries also offered Cuba back, uh, international vaccines during the uh, most hard moments in the pandemic, and the Cuban regime refused that help because they despite the, uh, the Cuban people, or at least that's what they show in the moment that they refused these international uh, vaccines. And actually, the total death of the COVID-19 in Cuba is one of the largest in the hemisphere. I, I recommend everybody to uh, look for the article in The Economist that actually count the numbers and make an estimate of what are the possible numbers of uh, the people that suffer death in Cuba because of, uh, of COVID-19. But beyond this uh, very uh, long use excuse that is the, uh, the embargo mine, my uh, petition to everybody that is watching this panel right now is to pay attention to what the Cuban people, the Cuban citizens, have been demanding in the street, actually taking the highest possible risk, which is the, the, the mere life, which is the liberty, because many of them are now in jail, 
what are they demanding? And they are not demanding the end of the embargo. They are demanding the end of the dictatorship. At the end of the day, we, as Cubans as, and as humans, we have the right to decide our future, to decide our economical, political system. That right has been kidnapped by a communist dictatorship for more than 60 years. Oh, Helen, Helen Rosa, I'm just going to jump in there, Rosa Maria, to give Helen a chance to respond, because she has a point, doesn't she? Let's look at the recent protests in 2021. Up to okay. 700 so people actually, arrested from those protests. That's severe infringement in, on human I, rights. Yeah, I was actually in Cuba uh, on the 11th of July. I, I was in Cuba sorry? on the 11th of July. I, I don't believe that Rosa Maria was. Um, and uh, I've written about my experience and also about the phenomenal mini media manipulation that happened. Um, there was... Uh, placards with slogans from uh, Rosa Maria's uh, organization that seem to have been pre-prepared for those demonstrations. And there's a lot of evidence that um, uh, about, you know, the we have to we have to recognize that the United States Congress, and this is covert, openly agreed funds um, $20 million every year for what they call democracy promotion regimes. Now, um, the Cubans, of course, call this regime change regimes, but we have to recognize that that's a lot of money um, and it is being challenged to, uh, channeled to people who are proponents of a transition to democracy. Uh, sorry, a transition to capitalism, because yeah, I think we need always, to be distinguished between that. And the last one I'd say is, for example, um, okay, okay, we can't I hear you if you're both talking over each other and I'm, I'm Sorry, conscious the, of us descending into a slightly different debate than the one that we had started out from. We're not going to be debating regime change in Cuba this show. I, I that saves, let's just move on. Andrew, I'm going to Helen just one moment because I want to bring in Andrew <laughs> and try and get the conversation back a little bit onto migration because we still need to look at the US changing policy towards people who want to go to the US and Andrew Let's ask a very basic question here. Should mass migration be brought to an end or should it be encouraged? What is the right answer? If people want to leave Cuba, should they be allowed to or should they be stopped? I mean, yeah, that's a complicated question. It depends on who you ask. I mean, I, you know, I think you could, a lot of Cubans would like to leave. Um, you know, I, uh, on the other hand, the US political system you know, at some point reaches a breaking point when there's a perception that there's no order at the at the border. And so that, you know, there is a, you know, there's conflicting ideas on this. I, I think there's a lot of people who believe people should be able to, to leave freely and go where they wish. But in the end, countries are sovereign and make decisions about who crosses. Um, the other thing that changed, and let me, if we could just go back to, to the migration part. I mean, the thing that changed is that the U.S. closed down its consulate mm. a few years ago, actually before the 2019 sanctions. This was somewhat separate. It was part of the hardening of the policy towards Cuba, but it was also a result of a specific incident where a lot of U.S. embassy employees and consular employees were, were getting headaches and, and mysterious illness, and no one knew what was caused by it. So the U.S. closed down the consulate. What that meant is, for years, there had existed legal pathways for Cubans to get to the United States. Um, a lottery, 20,000 uh, Cubans a year could go through a lottery to the United States. Another four to 5,000 a year were going through the diversity visa. And, and many more were actually going through family petitions, right? People being, 
being requested by family members to get a green card and come to the United States. So there were lots of reasons for Cubans to wait around for their legal turn to come to the United States. The other thing that broke down is all those legal pathways broke mm. down, right? And so yesterday, two, actually two days ago, the U.S. restarted consular processing um, in Havana. It remains to be seen how effective this will be. I mean, I, I think if you see that the U.S. Is, is again processing people, not under just the program that was announced yesterday, that's actually somewhat minor for Cubans, but the, the lottery system, the family reunification visas, there's now a sponsorship system which allows people waiting for their, their family reunification petition to come to the U.S. earlier, um, and the diversity visas. Many people might be willing to wait for their legal turn because there are legal turns to come. What Part of what happened is people lost the legal opportunity to come to the U.S. Nicaragua opened the process to come to Nicaragua without a visa. The U.S. wasn't returning people, and people said, look, things are really bad. This is my time to go, and I don't have another alternative. I'm going now. Absolutely. Helen, would you agree with that, that the opening of the consular office there in Havana, it's a step, isn't it, in the right direction if you're looking to improve relations between Cuba and the U.S.? Yeah, so there's two things that I wanted to add. I mean, there is this huge pull factor for Cubans going to the United States. So they have something called the Cuban Adjustment Act, which was passed in um, 1966 and updated a, a, a decade later. And basically it says that any, any Cuban arriving in the United States legally or not, uh, legal entry port or not, and so on and so forth, after one year can um, you know, claim their residency in the United States. Now they are the only citizens around the world that have that privilege. And it's a very big pull factor. It also means there are many Cubans settled in the United States. So when times get hard, they have the capacity to leave. Many of the Cubans who had left in er earlier periods had returned to Cuba, had uh, started to invest in small businesses and so on during the brief rapprochement under the Obama era, where, of course, Biden was vice president. And um, the other thing is that they have these accords, the Cubans and the United States, where they were the United States agreed to um, supply 20,000 visas a year mm. for Cubans traveling to the United States for all sorts of reasons. And they've never really met that target. But in the last five years, as, as um, the, the other speaker was saying, they basically closed down the consulate and not being issuing not issuing visas so there are some very simple steps that could be taken by the u.s administration this is one very small one but it's taken them a long time biden you know many people thought that he would reverse the um the the trump measures and go back to the obama policy and he, indeed he suggested that on his campaign during his campaign electoral campaign um but he hasn't done that he's taken you know this is a, a an important first step but there's a huge backlog of people who want to go and see their relatives or even scientists trying to enter the, for um science conferences and collaborations academics art culture and so on it's all been frozen and it's created a backlog and a frustration of people who may have very um, um, important personal reasons or intellectual scientific reasons to go to the United States and haven't been able to. And that is why I talk about the, ha the house being set on fire because the sanctions have created this economic hardship. And then, you know, if anyone is using um, Cuban migra migrants as a pawn, arguably it's the United States, which okay. hasn't been fulfilling it. Okay, Rosa Maria, do you welcome these changes? The uh, the Biden administration allowing in thirty thousand people 
uh, a month, but expelling another 30,000 people who don't have the correct paperwork. Do you welcome the opening of a consular office in Havana, the improvement of ties? Is that something that you, that many in the diaspora, want to see happen? Look, from, the, from, from many years now, but especially since this crisis began, we have been raising our voice to alert about the very dangerous situations that Cubans and migrants in general that are escaping from these three dictatorships and from Haiti are experiencing during the transit. When you do it by foot or when you do it by the sea, which is, uh, which is equally uh, dangerous. So in that regard, the open of new legal pathway to be able to immigrate, to escape from this dictatorship in a, in a safe way is something that we see positive. We can only hope, and we are actually demanding, that those Cubans, Venezuelans, Nicaraguans, anyone actually that gets to the southern border is uh, be treated in a, in a humane way. We have to understand that in, this, in these four cases, people is actually escaping. A dictatorship is actually escaping for a place where, where they cannot live or where their lives and security or liberty is, uh, is in danger. And in that sense, yes, we think that the opening of new legal pathways, the opening of the consulate in Havana is positive. Now, that's not to say that is the solution to this, uh, to this problem, because the problem is caused in, in, in these countries, because the real conflict is not between a, a, the Cuban regime and the United States government. The real conflict is between a whole population, this Cuban citizenry that wants to be free, that wants to choose their way of life, and a dictatorship that has been denying that for more than six decades. Okay. So if the government they wants to help, they could start by helping the demand for freedom of the Cuban people. And that includes, of course, pressuring the criminals that right now are keeping in jail Rosa more Maria, than a thousand. We do, apologies, we do have to leave it there. We, we may have to leave it on disagreement as to why people want to leave Cuba, but perhaps agreement that people must be allowed to do it should they want to, in a humane fashion. Thank you very much, Rosa Maria Paya. Helen Yaffe and Andrew Seeley for joining us today on our discussion. Thank you. This episode was produced by Dermot Fleming, Nihad Alabadi, Michael Harwood and Paul Taylor. Studio sound was by Suraj Sankar. The programme was edited by Manish Mathai, Lynn Nguyen and Joe DeFrias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening and do tune in on Monday for our next episode.